Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is taking off his TV editor of the Pop Break hat and putting on his co-host of Cinema Joe's hat. Alex Marcus is here. (laughs) Hey, Alex. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Good, good. So we've talked horror before on your show when I came on to review The Invisible Man the other week. Yes. But I'm not that familiar with your experience with horror, if it's something that you like as a general rule or if it's more an exception kind of thing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience with the genre? Sure. So growing up, I was a very kind of uh, nervous uh, kid with an overactive imagination, and that just made horror movies uh, very difficult for me to get through. (laughs) So I'm not one of these people who like grew up like loving horror movies. I mostly avoided it as much as I could. I remember distinctly one of my earliest memories was talking to a grown up about the fact that I had decided for myself that I wasn't going to see Batman forever because it just seemed too scary to me based on the (laughs) commercials. So, so that's that was my bar for right. For, okay, <laughs> but now you know. As I've grown up, I've tried to like dive into it a little bit, at least wade into the shallow end of the horror movie genre. And now, for the most part, I see like maybe like two, maybe three horror movies a year. I tend to gravitate towards the horror films that are more like analogies for or metaphors for like cultural issues. So like I like a movie that can engage me intellectually, I think partially because it helps me not be as afraid in the moment if I'm like constantly thinking about the movie, both like in terms of like the sensory like jump scares and then also this like actually like really smart metaphor that's going on kind of like lets me like remove myself from like the scariest like impulses a little bit right so like movies like the babadook or um get out things like that i think that it's really important to i mean this show really i feel like covers a pretty great spectrum of horror fans because on the one hand we have people like len kabazinski who knows every single director from the Grindhouse era and goes in depth about why Maniac Cop is the best horror movie ever made. (laughs) But I think that it's also really important to have people who have a varied taste where you're bringing, I think, a more broad perspective to what the genre offers than maybe some people who have spent more time diving deeper into this genre but ignoring some of the others. Yeah, no, I think that that's that makes a lot of sense. And I would never try to like say like that my pick for or my taste is anywhere indicative of like the absolute 100% best version of like the movie because I'm sure there's like this French slasher movie from like the late 70s that is probably the best <laughs> movie ever that like no one's ever heard of. So I would I don't want to try to rob the people of that. It just I have like a particular taste that it appeals to me and it mostly is like what I like movies for which is that movies let you kind of it's like a window into another life or into another experience and it lets you engage about something in the world that you don't get in your ordinary life. Ebert always used to say that movies are empathy machines and I'm I really really believe that that's kind of what I'm drawn to film for is to try to just walk in someone else's shoes see someone else's experiences or get inside someone else's headspace and I feel like with a really good horror film as a social commentary on x experience in the world it really lets you get inside of someone else's headspace and like how they're thinking about something in a way that like very few other forms of film really lets you because it's so immediate it like taps into that kind of like raw emotional component of that idea that they're playing with 
So that's that's why I like those types of movies in horror the best. Do you feel like with more varied voices getting a little more time in the spotlight, like a lot more women directors and a lot more directors of color, do you think that this kind of boom of these great uh, diverse voices is allowing horror as a genre to modernize in a way that allows these movies to uh, come out more frequently and to have more social commentary baked into the actual into the movie itself instead of just feeling tacked on where it's part of the horror of it so i think that a lot i think that the history of horror films is one that has a lot of films in it that talk about like important social issues important societal things going on you know like george romero is like his zombie stuff is about that like there's a lot of things even movies that seem kind of campy like now like the like freddy's revenge like has like a really deeply ingrained commentary on like homophobia and stuff like that like it's in there in those movies i think that the difference now is that different people are getting to make those movies so instead of it just being about like the vietnam war or like about like growing up in the suburbs it's like about all of these different types of people's experiences and that's what's really exciting and i think that horror can often be a unique avenue into those types of things partially for the reasons i already said but partially just because horror films can be made really cheap right which is a good thing. It means that a lot of it lowers the bar of entry for a lot of people to get into this and to try to put their hands in the pot and try to get something out of it. Like a lot of our best directors of all time started in horror because that was a door that was open to them that couldn't be for like other genres. So I think that horror has a lot of legacy in that regard. Generally speaking, I think that the difference is just that now more people are getting those different types of people are getting those opportunities and we're seeing the benefits of it. Definitely. Yeah, I think that it's helping to keep it fresh. Definitely. I know that I loved watching the documentary Horror Noir on Shudder because it really not only gave me a lot of movies in the back canon to go and check out, but really showcasing kind of the direction that black horror is taking and it's really exciting to see, and I'm really looking forward to Candyman when that comes out. So hopefully this continues to be horror's legacy, and uh, I'm excited to see what happens with it. So, Yeah, absolutely. Not to shift too hard, but... <laughs> We're going we're gonna to start talking about the, the movie that you picked now, which I also am here to agree is the best horror movie of all time. <laughs> we're talking about 2012's animated feature, Paranorman, from Leica Entertainment. Yes, and now your, your listeners might be a little confused, right? Because I just said, like, what type of horror I like the best, and now I'm picking a, like, <laughs> animated movie for kids. And you might be like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't track. But here, number one... I have a little bit of a corollary to what we're talking about, which is that it's the best horror movie ever made, dot, 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 for kids. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Number one, because, and like before we even get into anything, I just want to give like a brief defense of that position, which is just that everything in this film is created by people who love horror films. Mm -hmm. There's so many like little Easter eggs and little like things here and there that are just references to stuff. And just like every corner of the screen is just like oozing with love for the genre. So as like a starter film for kids interested in it or who love to read like goosebumps and things like that, but like a regular like R-rated horror movie is just too much. Like I think this is a great 
avenue for that. And also our protagonist kind of is a horror fan. Right. Which is great. But also, I think that it does have a broader appeal in the way that we're talking about, and we'll get into it. I think that it has a lot on its mind, a lot of interesting social commentary that is even more relevant today than it was back in 2012 when it was originally released. And I'm excited to uh, to dive into why that is. Definitely. And I think that you're right in that this is absolutely an amazing horror movie for kids, but... I don't want to soft sell it either because I really think that this movie has a lot to offer adults as well. I mean, Leica Studios is genuinely, I think, incredible. Uh, they've also brought us such movies as Corpse Bride, Coraline, Kubo and the Two Strings, last year's uh, Best Animated Feature nominee, The Missing Link. And Leica, every time, there's they know how to approach the material in a way that is accessible to kids in a way that really helps them engage with the material. But still, I would never be like, oh yeah, my cousin is watching Coraline. I'm gonna, you know, I would never watch that with them. In fact, I love Coraline. I think that it's absolutely incredible. I think it's terrifying. Yes. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of like, a mind f a little bit, when oh, you're, yeah. especially if, especially if you're little. Like I can't. I watched it when I was a full grown adult. I can't imagine being like a nine year old and watching Coraline for the first time. Oh, like you could God. do that in a movie. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And and like a they have a unique style. They approach this material in a way that is dark but also fun. Like uh, there's a lot of really horrific. Like they it's a horror movie. There's horrific stuff in it up and down the movie. Do you enjoy Leica as like a general studio? Do you find yourself enjoying their output or is this kind of a one-off for you? I do like Leica. I like their earlier stuff better than their most recent stuff. I feel like for me, a lot of the times when I see a Leica film, I'm like, that was pretty good. And then everyone else is like, that was amazing. And I mean, that might just be an issue of, you know, the types of people I'm listening to and like surrounded by uh, both (laughs) in real life and online, but because most people don't even know what Leica is, uh, which is very sad because I think that the craftsmanship of the films more than anything else is just like out of this world. Like the fact that they actually like, uh, like some of the things that happen in this film, I just don't understand how it's possible for (laughs) them to do with stop motion animation. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Like how how did you do this? It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So I th- so that is true across the board for all of their films. And I think that that's, that's notable. But I definitely have, you know, I like, this is probably my favorite of the Leica films. And Coraline is right there up there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I, I haven't seen Box Trolls or Missing Link, I'll be honest. And I, and I did see Kubo and... I kind of thought that it was a very pretty movie that didn't quite come together <laughs> in the end. And also felt weirdly, like, I just felt weird about the cultural appropriation of that movie. Um, I thought sure. they kind of, like, got a little bit of a pass for that just because they're a studio that, like, everybody likes. And so they didn't. But I, I just think that was a little bit weird. Yeah, I think that you'll probably have a lot of the same issues with a lot of their other stuff with Missing Link. Um, I actually find myself in a pretty similar boat in that I like their earlier stuff a lot better but i do like some of the more recent stuff i thought that missing link was pretty good i think that it helps that they really know how to cast their movies pretty well and i think that that extends into the missing link but uh this actually interestingly this was co-directed by sam fell and chris butler the latter of which also uh wrote this and was the writer director of the missing link oh okay 
so there is that Chris Butler connection between them. <laughs> um, and before that, they uh, he worked on as like a storyboard executive or something. He, he did something with a storyboard for Coraline as well. So definitely Leica Studios runs in Chris Butler's veins. So I think that it's easy to see the passion for animation and some of uh, similar things kind of tend to crop up in these stories that if you like them, you'll keep liking it. If you don't, and you don't <laughs> connect with it, then you're probably not going to get anything new out of it. And also Box Trolls, I thought was pretty good too, but same kind of boat. Yeah, that's the one that I like most want to catch up on because I feel like I didn't give it. It just all the commercials for it just made it look really gross, and yeah. I just was like, um, I don't need this in my life. <laughs> but I've heard good things about it in the years since. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Not nearly as good as Paranorman, but uh, still pretty good. <laughs> and like I said, there Leica's casting is really great. That is, it continues in this as well. Uh, the cast in this movie is really funny to me because, you know, Norman himself is played by Cody Smith McPhee who's been in things here and there, uh, like X-Men Apocalypse as Nightcrawler. Shout out to my X-Men fans. <laughs> and uh, his friend Neil is played by Tucker Albrizzi. And it's like, oh, okay, I like that guy in AP Bio. But then you scroll down to the rest of the cast and it like, blows your damn hair back. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You got Anna Kendrick, Leslie Mann, John Goodman, Christopher Mintz-Plass, Jeff Garland, Elaine Stritch in her last role, voiceover legend Alex Borstein, and I feel like with animated movies, there's an extra layer of having to convince people because first they have to get past the art and then also they have to be like, okay, story, uh, acting, all that jazz. So I had no idea that the cast was this strong and it was a movie I have seen before. And so I feel like voice <laughs> actors might get like a little bit of short shrift with some of these animated movies where it's like, you know, there are people who are known for their voice acting, but when you don't have their their faces plastered on the on the poster, it can be a little harder for the animated movie to get butts in seats, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think a great performance, whether it's live action or voiceover, is great because what you know about that actor, well, there's two there's two versions of this, right? There's one version where everything that you know about the actor helps inform the role and help and is additive and it like helps you it makes the role even better than it would have been on the page right like that's like a lot of tom cruise movies are like that where it's like no one else could play these roles but tom cruise because tom cruise has like 30 years of cultural baggage that he's bringing to every one of these scenes that like just like makes it pop in a way that it couldn't if it was just like dylan mcdermott or something you know (laughs) (laughs) um but then the other kind of acting is everything that you know about that person just like fades away and they just slide into the role and they give the role life in such a compelling way that you just like almost forget who you're watching. And I think that's doubly true for a great voiceover uh, performance because, you know, in general, it's a lot harder to even tell, like, to recognize voices than we think when, when it's disembodied. Like, yeah, a lot of the times when there's, like, voiceovers for, like, car commercials, then they'll be it'll be on Twitter and you'll be like, oh, who's that guy? And, like, there'll be, like, 15 guesses of famous people and, like, everybody's wrong and it's actually, like, this one guy who had a Comedy Central special four years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, like, it is just genuinely hard to identify voices sometimes. And I think when you're giving a really compelling performance that it really, like 
that really supports the character on screen and the character is a good character that's well written then you just lose track of who they are like i i completely forgot that john goodman was in this movie i right like i knew that i was going to be talking about it with you and so when i watched when i rewatched it a couple of nights ago i looked up it was like wait who is that guy because i couldn't quite place his voice and then I was like oh my god of course it's John Goodman yeah. and he's amazing <laughs> I think that what Leica does really great it's similar to what Pixar does where they just really cast for the role yeah. they're not trying to get like you know these megawatt stars like they're not like oh Julia Roberts is coming in to be Charlotte in Charlotte's Web it's like okay why like <laughs> what about like I mean and I'm I don't know I didn't see that movie maybe she was great as the spider but the, <laughs> but like that's not what they're doing they're looking for people who could give a good performance and be right for the role yeah and like find really talented people to do that which is really great and I think especially at this point once like Leica had established themselves a little bit and gained a reputation for being such a creative outlet and such like very high-end films that I think that they probably had an even easier time getting the people that were on their wish list. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And I also agree with these actors kind of fading into their roles, especially for this. The only one who I immediately recognized was Christopher Mintz-Plass, so... (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's definitely him, but... But playing against type in an interesting way. Yes, Definitely. Or at least initially against type, you know. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah, it's funny to uh hear the voice of McLovin coming out of this guy. <laughs> yeah. But luckily, uh, in addition to having this all-star cast, I do think that the art in this one is very strong. I think that the people all look really interesting and unique and this is actually the first stop motion movie where uh the faces were all 3D printed. Okay. A huge advancement in making these, especially in terms of like budgeting for speed and the amount of time it takes to make a stop motion movie. The only non-3D printed faces were the zombies who had mechanical faces with silicone skin, uh the different materials helping to further differentiate themselves and make them sort of other. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a, a cool little uh, thing that probably wasn't super noticeable on screen, but just kind of like gives you uh, the indication of them being different. Yeah, I think that it does, like it pays off for yeah. the visual aesthetic because there's at various points you see those characters before they were zombies and there is a tangible difference. It's not just, oh, they're like decomposing. Like there's a tangible difference between how they're designed there versus mm-hmm. how they're designed when they're a zombie. So I think that I didn't know that that's how they did that, but I'm I'm not surprised given how well it comes across on screen. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, basically this is the story of Norman, who is a young boy who can see and speak to ghosts. And he discovers that a curse is coming back and he needs, he's the only one who can stop it. It's a lot of fun. I think that it's really great for kids who are feeling maybe a little ostracized or a little different than their peers, which is, you know, a very common protagonist sort of thing for, for these movies. But it's also really interesting in, like, the way that they make him not just relatable in, like, general dorkiness, <laughs> like, where you're just like, I relate because I understand that he is just nebulous loser character. Um, but in this, he like genuinely has like a thing, like because he has this gift, he's obsessed with horror and, you know, we see uh, his room is coated in, in horror posters and merch and stuff like that. And so I think that it's very relatable in a very specific way and specificity is what makes a great movie. So, uh, I think that they do a really good job with that in, um, in just establishing this character. 
Yeah, well, and that's actually one of the first things that I wanted to talk about with this film, why I think that it's so, so great, is that it's a movie that is not very long, right? Mm. But it it really takes the time to establish Norman as a character and to establish his world before, like, getting into the plot. And I think that that has two really great effects, which is, one, it causes the, the second half of the film to kind of be on, like, it just accelerates really fast. Like, oh, you're yeah. just going, like, boom, 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 like, plot point to plot point to plot point to emotional moment to emotional moment. Like, you just can't even catch your breath, and it just makes it exhilarating. And that really comes across, especially, like, the more times you watch the film, you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're already at this part of the movie. <laughs> like, the you know, like, it's like, wow, it just, like, there's no time in between. And that's exciting and that's fun and but i think that it also is great because you really take the time early to establish who norman is in a way that makes him really feel real and to establish all of the relationships in his life like his relationship to each of his parents are different his relationship to his sister is different his relationship to the to the various kids at school are different from each other and you get a real sense of how he fits into this world how like being able to talk to ghosts affects him in both positive and negative ways. Like it's really, really fleshed out in a real, in like just a very considerate and empathetic way that makes you really care about him, which then lets you care about what happens later in the film. And I think a lot of movies just don't take that time, especially a kids movie with all of this plot and all of this excitement and everything else like it's like you know and you gotta and then like a lot of times in animated movies like you gotta hit the jokes every few minutes you gotta have an action set piece here you gotta do like there's a lot of stuff that these screenwriters have to deal with just because of the genre that they're in and this like comedy horror animated film for families and adults like that's so much to tackle and they really put in the work early on to make you really like buy into the world and care about him and care about his relationships with other people and like the movie just doesn't work as well if you don't do that so i really applaud them for being able to put in the time and and really making you care as an audience member i mean it's evident from minute one that they're taking this great care the tone setting of the introduction is just spectacular it starts off with a very like historical <laughs> like like a uh, horror thing where the aspect ratio is different there's film grain on the front there's like these fun colors that look like a an old tube tv um it <laughs> says feature presentation and then it transitions into the regular production credits and to me this is saying like this is not just like a cash grab we're not doing this because horror is big right now we're doing this because we love the genre i think that you like when you mentioned that earlier i think that it really just seeps out of every pore of this movie and i think that they they love even uh, the foibles of low budget horror it seems like uh, <laughs> the weird <laughs> takes where it's like uh she stops screaming in the middle <laughs> and it's like uh we only have enough film for one take so just take it and uh you know the boom mic coming into frame and all these little things that are so fun to keep an eye out for when you're watching sort of low budget horror movies and you're you know maybe you're watching it with friends and stuff and sort of the the well-worn holes in the in the outfit make it show how loved it is you know yeah. um i mean the actress in it is modeled after jamie lee curtis in halloween the plot is a spoof of 1968's the night of the living dead so much of this passion for horror is is packed into this into this beginning which apparently was insanely difficult to replicate these issues like bad angling and fuzzy focus because of the intensity of working in stop motion animation which i thought was really interesting 
yeah, I can't. I truly don't know how they made this movie. Like, there's, you know, there, there's a popular podcast about bad movies. Where like, how did this get made? Uh, but I truly don't know how this got made because it's just <laughs> so incredible what they accomplished. Like, it's just, it just the the amount of difficulty that they had to have like encountered to pull these things off is just out of this world. You really forget that you're watching stop motion animation at a certain point. Yeah, and I think that the proof is in the pudding because it comes out looking fantastic and it's not it feels very lived in because they took this care. So Absolutely really great stuff. Uh the movie takes place in Blythe Hollow, Massachusetts, a town with a, a famous uh witch killing history. So uh Norman Babcock is an eleven year old boy obsessed with horror and who speaks to the dead, including his late grandmother and various ghosts in town. And there's a great way that they intro this because he's watching a horror movie and talking with his grandma, but we don't know that she's dead. (laughs) She's just talking normally with him while he's watching the movie. And we get to see this power in action. And then we also immediately see how emotionally isolating this is because his family ridicules him. They fight amongst themselves uh, because of it as well with like this this lashing out about each other's like sides of the family and everything and it, you immediately feel so bad for Norman <laughs> yeah well and I remember the first time that I watched this I was and I've seen it three times now but the first time that I watched it I was very much like why are they just why are they being so mean to him like why is his family being so like mean about this and then this and the second time around I thought like well no if you are an adult and you, like, just lost your mother, like, a few months ago. Because you get the impression that she hasn't been dead that long. Like, maybe it's been yeah. six months, maybe it's been a year, but it hasn't been that long. And you have this little kid in your house who's constantly being like, I'm talking to grandma, I'm talking to grandma. Like, that would be so upsetting to you. Yeah. You know, like, that would be so, so, I get it. Like, I get why he, and Jeff Garland, who plays the dad, just does such an amazing job of really just feeling like a real dad. Like, he just, it just so embodies this kind of, oh, yeah. like, I care so much about my kid. I have no, I have like literally no faculty to express that to him. And I'm just really afraid that he's destroying his life. And so what do I do? I'm just going to yell at him. Like, And it's just like, there's so much baked into that. And it just yeah. comes across in every single scene that they have. Like he is so frightened for his son. And there's that, there's that scene later that I'm sure we'll get to that is really powerful. Yeah. It, it seems like he has a lot of baggage from when he was a kid, perhaps, and and so he knows what it's like to be bullied and stuff and doesn't want that for his son. And I think that you're definitely right about the timing as well, because it's within a close enough period that they're like, oh, this is the grieving process. Like, right. they uh, ascribe it to that. And so, you know, if it was several years ago, I don't think that they would <laughs> they would be saying that. So no. I think that you're spot on in terms of... Um, how upsetting it would be in terms of its relation to the actual death. Yeah, and you get the sense that they had been using that excuse, it's the grieving process, for long enough to kind of like just push it all, like push it under the table and like just not yeah. think about it. And now it's been just long enough that that excuse like doesn't feel like earned anymore. And right. so they're just all getting sick of it. And they're like, it's time to get over the fact that grandma's dead. Stop talking about her like she's here because yeah. it's really upsetting for everyone else. You're being a dick, <laughs> Norman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, no one believes him. Uh, he's, like I said, isolated emotionally. He's ridiculed by by his peers. And there's a great scene when he's walking to town right at the beginning, and you see sort of the environment that he's in. It, you know, it's it's sort of dumpy in a touristy, seasonal kind of way. 
and uh, the ghosts who are like, first of all, there are ghosts everywhere. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, they have they had a lot of fun with the ghosts in this yeah. opening in this sequence, especially. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is that I really like uh, that they like have the ways that they died, including like cement shoes for a mobster, and there's an aviatrix who was uh, impaled by a tree, and it's not. <laughs> It's not presented in a scary way, but it is sort of, like, ghastly, <laughs> where yeah. it's just, they're like, yeah, these are dead people. Well, it's almost the scariest part is how completely unfazed he is by it. Mm-hmm. Because you're seeing these situations where, like, these people are very, like, they have been killed in some, in sometimes horrific fashions, and they are dead, and they're just like, hey, Norman, how you doing? And he's just like, oh, hi, how are you? Like, nice to see you again. And he's just like, what? what? <laughs> like, this is yeah. very upsetting and off, and, like, just, like unnerving yeah that this he's is so okay like at least when Haley joel osmond saw dead people he was upset about it <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say that this is like if Haley joel osmond just like kind of got used to it eventually yeah <laughs> but yeah so norman he he does just take it in stride he's chatting with them he tells he's like oh i can't really talk that much i gotta get on my way to school and well and just to not to interrupt you but i think you really get a strong sense in the sequence that these are the only people that he talks to yeah like He's being friendly to them because they're his friends. And the heavy implication from that is he's friends with them because he doesn't have any other friends to be friends with, you know? And there, yeah. there's like, and there's just a a sad melancholy to that that is just layered into that character so subtly. Because this, this sequence, and this is what I'm saying about why this movie is so good, is because this one sequence right here, there's humor right there's a lot of heart there's a lot of complicated emotions of like it's scary it's it's antisocial. it's also kind of heartbreaking and yet it's also weirdly pleasant yeah. and fun and like full of imagination and it's just like wow like and they're just and that's just you know what are we like five minutes into the movie at this point <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly they really they are taking the time to build this character but it's not just like okay, we got to sit here and be bored while they tell us about Norman. Like, it's still really great stuff. And being able to understand where he's coming from definitely helps the later sequences mean that much more. Like you said, he doesn't really talk to anyone. He does make one friend eventually, forged in the fires of being bullied by Alvin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You get Neil Down, uh, who's an overweight boy who has a cool lunchbox with a kitten on it. (laughs) (laughs) They're rehearsing a school play. Uh, commemorating the town's execution of a witch three centuries ago. And I think that, boy, when when they're like, oh, it's not historically accurate, and the teacher is like, yeah, I know, it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to sell postcards and keychains. I was like, <laughs> oh my god. Like, they're not pulling any punches here. Yeah. But this is also a really good way for them to do a little bit of an exposition dump. We get some history of the town. Uh, regarding the witch cursing seven accusers to become the living dead. Uh, It's a great performance by the teacher. Like, the character of the teacher gives a great performance. Yes, she does. (laughs) Um, My theater teacher wasn't this way, but I still love the, like, way over-the-top theater teacher tropes. (laughs) Yeah. Is that that something that that you enjoy as well? I do. I, I, for some reason, my schools never really had drama teachers at all, actually. So I can't oh, personally man. relate to this, but I love, but the, but I can relate to it on the other end of just like knowing people who, you know, like 
they cared really deeply about the performing arts and they wanted a future in it. And now they're like middle aged and they've fallen into this <laughs> and they're just trying to they're trying to make it be as fulfilling as it possibly can. And these kids are just like so not willing to go along with them <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh Norman also has a vision of people's faces burning away and being replaced by leering Puritans, which yes. is, boy, just a terrifying image. <laughs> That's a lot for an 11-year-old to process. <laughs> yeah. Also, this is the second movie with leering Puritans on this show, so I don't, I don't know what's going on that uh, makes Puritans so ripe for horror movies. But I mean, listen, when you have a good thing, you just got to keep doubling down on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the boys, Nathan and uh, – not Nathan, Norman and Neil – are walking home and they're, they're like discussing how bullying is part of human nature and you're just like oh my god what a bummer <laughs> like this conversation is that uh, neil is just so matter of fact like oh if you were bigger and dumb you would probably be a bully too and it's like oh my god neil it's yeah it's a little twisted and a little sad but it's also like weirdly empathetic if you really think about it like he's yeah. he's not being like these bullies are evil and I want to kill them because they make me feel bad. Like, he's like, no, they're just people. And, like, they're doing this because, like, they're people and people are stupid and, like, this is just part of being a person. Yeah. So, like, and that's, like, actually subtly layering in a theme that will become very important. In it the- sure does. <laughs> <laughs> While they're walking home, they're interrupted in this conversation by Norman's estranged and seemingly deranged uncle, Mr. Prendergast who tells his nephew that uh, he must soon take up his regular ritual to protect the town. But soon after this encounter, Mr. Prendergast dies of a heart attack. This performance is so fun. This is John Goodman's character, and he is really just hamming it up, really going off the walls, and it's great. I love, I mean, John Goodman is an amazing, amazing actor, and when he gets to really have fun like this, uh, it's just a joy. Yeah, he just, he kind of just totally owns the few scenes that he gets he makes such a great impression as just a totally unhinged nut job (laughs) definitely we now see the official performance of the school play and norman has a vision of the town's past in which he's pursued through the woods by townsfolk on a witch hunt and he embarrasses himself in the play and it leads to a heated argument between his father perry uh who you said is jeff garland um, and his his dad is just so, like you said, he's so scared about what is going to happen to Na- uh, to Norman. I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Nathan. <laughs> they, he's so scared about what's going to happen to Norman. And his his mother, Sandra, tells him that this is the case. But Norman is so upset about his father lashing out in this way. And we definitely understand, like we sympathize with the fact that it is out of love. But you can also understand, like, that only uh, soothes the wound so much, you know? Yeah, well, and this is just especially, like, the sequence that they have in the car when, after the after the big play performance, is just really the most heartbreaking part of the film, I think. Because it just is, like, it talks, so, <laughs> he's 
brutally honest mm-hmm. in that scene in a yeah. way that you don't expect a kid's movie to go. Like, that's a scene that I feel like has happened in many people's lives about a variety of things. And this is kind of especially, like, for me, I think this film has a queer reading to it. Like, there's a queer mm-hmm. subtext to, like, everything that Norman is going through. And I think that it's most explicit in this sequence where he's where his dad is kind of confronting him and he's like well I didn't ask to be born this way and the dad is like well we didn't either and it's just so crushing yeah. and the mom's like well he's just afraid of how the world is going to treat you and he's like well he shouldn't have to be afraid of me and you don't care like somebody who cares about me wouldn't talk to me like that basically yeah and it's just like yeah like and but of course like both things are true like he does care about him clearly he cares so much that he's being awful um and that's terrible i definitely agree that this is crushing and i i think that that interpretation of of the like the queer lens that you can read this movie through is really uh, is really strong i think that it does add a layer to this movie that i think is really interesting i think that you're definitely right in that this is probably a very relatable scene for a lot of queer people everyone is dealing with the situation as well as they can but unfortunately for norman his dad's best as he can is not good (laughs) no it's just incredibly hurtful in a way that the dad i don't think even really understands in that moment how hurtful he's being because he's too caught up in his own feelings his feelings of being overwhelmed his feelings of concern for his kid but also feelings of uncomfort like discomfort with the situation and just like this desire to just like not have to deal with this Mm -hmm. and like he's so he's so full of those feelings he can't even consider that he's talking to a kid like a little boy who like needs his dad to just tell him that he's everything's gonna be okay and that he loves him and supports him and that's what would be the best thing for him in that moment and instead he just gets the absolute opposite and it's just great because it's so honest it's not like nobody's being a villain in that moment everybody's just being scared and overwhelmed and just like saying the thing that they have probably been thinking for a long time but never but knew enough to not say and in that Mm -hmm. moment their emotions are so heightened that they can't help but say it you know it finally comes out but not in a histrionic way which is also nice like everything is pretty underplayed it's like it's not like jeff garland is screaming and crying and saying why can't you just be like a normal kid (laughs) like it's not like that it just it feels real it feels like they're driving home from a school play that went horribly wrong like that it just it's so for a movie about like zombies and that's that's uh, stop motion <laughs> animation it just it's so incredibly emotionally real in yeah. a way that's palpable that is also one of the reasons why I, I love it so much like uh to their credit with this movie you know they know that after this really just intense emotional moment they swing it the other way and we the i cackled at alvin misspelling his name several times <laughs> he's sharpieing like he's graffiti sharpieing on the marker or on the uh, wall of the bathroom uh-huh. and then and crossing it out after yeah. each time he spelled it wrong yeah. Uh, yeah very funny stuff and it's it's a nice sigh of relief after that uh, that really great but intense scene but you don't get to relax that long because honestly when uh, Prendergast's ghost reappears to um, to Norman. There's like some pretty intense stuff, like the walls kind of closing in on him and everything. It's a pretty frightening scene that I, I think for for a kid who might be watching that. And I think that yeah. that definitely is a trend that continues through this movie. Where there are, there are moments where I was like, damn, between the intense like sound mixing in this movie, which is really 
spectacular as well. I mean, I can't say that I'm ever, like, super keeping an ear out for sound mixing, but this one is good enough <laughs> that I noticed it, where, like, uh, later there's, like, spikes popping out of the ground, and it has, like, this knife noise, and I was like, damn, that sounds really good and really scary. And so there's these scenes in the movie that I think help to solidify it as a horror movie, especially for kids. Absolutely. And when I said earlier that I think this is, a, like, the best horror movie ever made for kids... Like, I don't mean, like, four-year-old kids, you know? Like, I like I think that this demographic that they're trying to hit is probably somewhere between, like, 8 and 12, you know? Like, depending on the kid. So I think that, like, that is, like, the sweet spot for this movie, which is kind of cool because I think, well, for a long time, movies like that just weren't made. Like, you're either a kid's movie and you're, like, supposed to be, like, for, like, between, like, toddler age and, like, first, second grade, you know? Like, that's the range that you're trying to hit as a kid's movie. Or you're, like, right. a f- like a family movie for everybody. And that has this kind of, like, a sanitized kind of sanded edges to it as well. This movie really feels targeted to, like, older kids, which is cool. And that's, like, a demographic that should be serviced more. And because they're they're ready for, like, these this level of scares, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, this might not be the most terrifying thing to you or me, but if you're nine years old and you're watching it and you haven't spent the last year, like, watching every scary movie that ever existed, which some nine-year-olds definitely do, <laughs> <laughs> then this stuff would be scary. Yeah. And, like, and also the humor, by the way, is the exact same way. Like, there's a lot of levels of humor to this movie, um, and some of them surprise you by how adult they are. Yeah. Um, but not in the kind of, like, oh, this one's for the dad kind of way you know like it just you're just like oh wow that's actually like a good smart joke like you know yeah, i definitely like agree the with part that, that they had like the part where afterwards like after this sequence that we're talking about where uh norman tries to tell neil what happened and he's like the so the my uncle like met me in the bathroom or something and he's like ew and he's like no he's a ghost it's not like that and you're just like wow i can't believe they made yeah. that joke yeah um absolutely and i think that uh, you're, I think you hit the age range pretty perfectly as well. And I think that this serves as a great litmus test for Coraline because <laughs> yeah, truly I think that Coraline is still scary. Like I, there are, there are parts in that movie that unnerve me to the point where I'd be like, yeah, I think that that's a scary movie. And so yeah. for a lot of kids that genuinely might be a movie that is too scary for a lot of them. And so if they can get through this movie, I think that there's a lot of great, really awesome stuff that is also found in Coraline, but on an even more accessible level. Yes. Yeah, Coraline has existential dread in it, which is just wild. (laughs) It sure does. (laughs) But yeah, it's great, and this scene is really great, and it does have these scary moments, but Prendergast basically says, I'm back to tell you that here's what's going to happen with the resurrection of the witch, and the ritual needs to be performed with a certain book before sundown that day. Uh, And then he makes him swear to complete the task. And because he no longer has to worry about it, Prendergast's spirit is set free. And Norman is supposed to be grounded from his dad. (laughs) But he (laughs) he decides that this is his duty. He has to do it. There's a fun moment where he gets like a text. uh, He gets a text from Neil that says, look outside. And his text tone is the Halloween theme song. Also, I noticed when he looks out the window that there's just like a lot of random skulls in the artwork of this movie. Like, the dirt on the roof outside his window is in the shape of a skull. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I'm curious if other people, uh, other listeners have noticed this sort of thing. Um, if you've spotted some, definitely shout it out in the in the comments somewhere. But it's just an, a very cool little touch. 
And yeah, this movie is filled with Easter eggs. I'm sure oh, yeah. I only noticed like an eighth of the Easter eggs that are on screen. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm sure. And a lot of them, they like definitely range in terms of like deep cuts where I'm sure that there's stuff that I'm missing too. There's stuff that uh, anyone would miss except for the people who put them in. <laughs> right. And Norman looks outside as per the directions on his text and he <laughs> sees Neil standing there. It's a very Michael Myers-esque shot, although he's wearing a hockey mask like Jason. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Norman is reluctant to go on this mission because he's scared. But his grandmother tells him that it's okay to be scared as long as you don't let it change who you are. First of all, great message. I, I yeah. think that that's a, a, a very accurate description of fear. I know that there's sort of like a courage is not not being afraid. It's being afraid and doing it anyway. And I think that this is a really good way of kind of passing that message along to kids. Yeah, but, absolutely. I wish that someone told me that when I was a little kid because I think I could have used that advice. Right. The kind of to, because it's so and I think that it's at the core of what's so emotionally like satisfying about this film is that. Every every message that they're sending to the audience is one that that centers empathy. So when you're saying something like it's okay to be afraid as long as it doesn't change who you are, what that is saying to you as an audience member is you you don't need to deny your feelings. Like your feelings are valid and they matter. Yeah. What but it also matters that you hold on to who you are as a person, that you don't let these feelings move you in an unnatural way, in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily act. Like, that's what's wrong. Feeling it is fine. Feeling it yeah. is good. It's important. But having it motivate you to do things that are not like you, which is another way of saying, like, things that are bad, things that will hurt people, things that will change how you see yourself, that's what's bad about feelings. So as long as you don't do that, feel how you how you need to feel. It's okay. And I think that's just such an incredibly, like, it's a, it's a, it's a radically empathetic message to layer into a movie like this, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that it's kind of the mirror image of what Neil was talking about before, about how it's, about how bullying is in human nature. And I think that this is saying that a lot of that bullying is born out of fear and out of anger. And these things are good to feel because it's part of the human experience. But when you let it change you and let it transform you into someone who does lash out in this way, that's when it becomes an issue. And so being able to kind of pair up these scenes, I think is really important and helps to communicate that issue. Absolutely. I also really want to shout out the transitions in this movie because like people don't like ghosts and stuff don't just show up they're not just like uh i'm here now <laughs> uh the grandma <laughs> like fades out into the poster prendergast comes up through the toilet the omens have that cool burning effect like everything yeah. is very neat they have they have a lot of fun with it because why not they can you know they're like they're an animated movie they are not like restricted in the way that a live action mm. film might be so why not have fun with it like why can't he come out of the toilet if he has to confront him in the bathroom instead yeah. of just like appearing in front of him like it's more fun if he comes out of the toilet you know <laughs> yeah absolutely it is norman sets off to retrieve the book from prendergast's house and we get a lot of very fun tropey exploring a haunted abandoned house kind of goodness yeah and that house man that house looks like it smells <laughs> sure not just because of the corpse no no like it smelled for a long time before that man died in it <laughs> yeah and norman does find the book but he has to like pull it from the corpse 
and mm. it licks him. And I oh my god, that was like the most like gross thing in this yeah. entire movie. I recoiled. <laughs> me too. Like this is as I said, this is the third time that I've seen this movie, and I still like had a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. Oh, it's it, so gross. <laughs> it's really gross. And he takes this book and he goes to the graves of the five men and the two women who were cursed by the witch. But he finds out that the book is just a series of fairy tales, and he's stopped from reading it by Alvin. This really awesome ghostly storm that like is it looks like the witch appears in the air, summoning the the dead to arrive uh, arise as zombies who chase the boys. This resurrection scene is really cool. It's really spooky. There's a zombie whose jaw is still attached, but the flesh around it has sagged off from around the bone. It's yeah, really disgusting. Really upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you said, the animation work in this is really spectacular and they do have fun with it. And things like this where it's like, well, we probably wouldn't really be able to do that that effectively with a real person but with this you know you just have that flesh hanging down off of his uh his cheeks and it's it's gross and it's scary but it looks great and it's and because it's stop motion and not cg it's really tactile also you know there's not there's no none of that kind of like glossy feel to it like this feels like a real thing that's happening which makes it grosser (laughs) and more upsetting in a lot of ways absolutely (laughs) one thing before we get like before we go too far from the scene that we were talking about a minute ago with neil and and norman i just wanted to lay in that this is yet another scene that we're seeing norman actively push people away who want to help him because he feels like he has to do things on his own mostly it seems like because he's afraid of being vulnerable with other people right people have been Mm -hmm. so mean to him and rejecting him so often that he's kind of created this mental like uh script in his head that like he has to be alone that's the only way that he could function in the world so much so that it kind of it he ends up pushing away the people who actually don't care about that stuff and just really want to be there for him because it just doesn't fit in this narrative that he's fallen into because of how broadly the community has been treating him and that's an important theme that is like well established multiple times over the these opening sequences um which then comes in really for the climax later on definitely and neil's persistence in reaching out to norman i think is what helps to yeah like you said everything everything is just working so well there's this great sense of simpatico with all the messages kind of working together here (laughs) in synergy because you can see how the way that Norman is feeling has affected him. It is changing who he is because he's he seems to be this really friendly kid. But, you know, when people start reaching out to him, he's been kind of beaten into submission, like you said, where he has this script. And so this fear that he is feeling is changing him. And I think that a combination of the, the great advice from his grandma and having someone there who luckily is there for norman to to use his shoulder as support um i think that it all really it it just works together in a really great way yeah absolutely norman like i said he's supposed to be grounded (laughs) so norman's older sister courtney goes out looking for him and she goes to neil and truly hilarious visual comedy when neil pokes his head out and points to himself (laughs) yeah (laughs) i 
cackled with laughter at it. Like, I, it really, I, I loved it. We should we should say Courtney played by Anna Kendrick, who is just giving, like, the absolute peak, oh, yeah. like, disinterested teen girl <laughs> uh, performance. Yes, it's really great. <laughs> at least disinterested until uh, Casey Affleck's uh, hot teen boy character shows up. <laughs> yes. He plays uh, Neil's brother, Mitch, and the three of them go out looking for Norman, who's holed up with Alvin, at Prendergast's house looking for more clues when more zombies burst in. And there's a great spooky moment when the zombie is, like, walking down the hall with his uh, finger dragging on the wall. Oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, yeah. And there's some really great cinematography in this scene as well with some really awesome snap zooms on the zombies mm-hmm. where I feel like sometimes cinematography in an animated movie can fall by the wayside where a lot of times it's just these flat, static shots. It really makes you notice when you have these quick movements in a movie like this. Uh, I think that it helps to make it feel more real and to because it feels more like a, a more typical movie. Right. Well, and I think that it's be- also because they these people clearly love horror films. Yes. And they're being inspired by it by horror films and they want to recreate some of these like iconic sort of shots and compositions and set pieces and they do an excellent job with mm-hmm. it. And Norman realizes from a picture at the house that the witch was not buried in the graveyard. And Norman and Alvin run out of the house and they find Neil and company. They they call their classmate uh, Salma, who tells them to access the town hall's archives for the location of the witch's unmarked grave. And as they make their way to town hall, the zombies are being attacked by the citizens of the town. And (laughs) Courtney says the zombies are eating everyone, but they're the ones being attacked. So very much sort of this you see what you want to see kind of uh, approach to it. Yeah, the the moment where the townspeople like, turn into this, like, riotous uh, group of pitchfork-wielding mob and, ha- and like, then turning on the zombies and having the zombies become the victims mm-hmm. is probably the most ingenious decision that this film makes. Yeah. And it, it's so smart, and it's, like, such a great commentary on just, like, the about fear and about mob mentality and about so much that is wrong with our current society and about this fear of the other and how it's informed by everything. And it just, it's such a great idea for it to be, like, because, yeah, because in every other movie, I mean, maybe not everyone, obviously, in Scream... People have seen horror movies before, you know, famously. Mm -hmm. But most horror movies exist in a world where, like, horror movies don't exist. Right. You know? And these people have seen every single zombie movie, and they know exactly what to do. And the zombies (laughs) are totally (laughs) outmatched and outgunned. (laughs) Yeah. They don't know how to handle the situation at all. They're just scared by the modern world. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a great switch to be like, no, wait, these are people... And they existed hundreds of years ago, and now they're just, like, rolling up to Main Street. They would be really confused. (laughs) And then, of course, like, uh, you know, modern American small-town values is just going to, like, try to murder every single one of these people (laughs) because they're afraid. Yeah. And it's just, it's perfect. It's so, so perfect. I love, that's what, like, when I'm watching this movie the first time, when that happens, I'm like, oh, this is actually a really good movie. Like, this is not just, oh, it's a good movie for kids, or it's like, it's, this has a lot on its mind, and it's really smart about executing it in ways that are surprising and thoughtful. And I think that's just... That's rare to find. This is kind of the moment where it does rise to another level. I think that this is definitely kind of the tipping point where it goes from good to great. Yeah. And during this hubbub, 
Norman breaks into the archives but can't find the information that they need. Another really, like, intense adult joke, the police show up and inform everyone that shooting at civilians is a cop's job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was... I think if I think if this movie came out today, the only thing that would be different is they would not include that joke. Because yeah. <laughs> that's just even like way darker now yeah. than it even was back then. But that was yeah, but that is pretty. That was I that stuck out to me this time as yeah. well. Very <laughs> much. Like, a whoa. Laugh through the tears kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the, I, I think that the writing in this movie is really great. There's a lot of funny visual gags, but also the dialogue is really great. And you do get these funny jokes that, uh, like you said, range from itchy wieners to, uh, to this yeah. this police brutality joke. I love, oh, speaking of jokes with Alvin, like in this moment is when they're trying to get into the to City Hall, to the like Hall of Records. And they're like, they can't get in because the door is locked. Yeah. And they all turn to Alvin. They're like, do you know how to break a lock? And he's like, yeah, because he's like this like kind of like bully, kind of like badass kind of kid, whatever. Yeah. But he's also super lame. And so he's like, yeah, I could do it. No problem. And he just breaks through the window <laughs> and unlocks the door. With a, a, a sign that's a crime prevention seminar. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's just, it's so funny. Yeah. A lot of good stuff. And the town attacks Town Hall. The mob that has formed attacks Town Hall. And the witch storm appears over this crowd. Norman climbs up the hall's tower to read the book in kind of a last-ditch effort to finish the ritual. But the witch strikes the book with lightning. And he does that after pushing everybody away for now the fourth or fifth time. Where he's like, I didn't ask for you to help me. Just leave me alone. You guys are doing nothing but complaining. I don't need your help. I'll figure this out on my own. Yeah, and not only are the like it's various shades of that where they're complaining. Even people who are trying to help, like Neil, is trying to help, but it's he's reading the wrong book, and it's obviously the wrong book, and it takes him <laughs> a long time to read twenty four chapter or twenty four pages on asbestos and you. <laughs> so it's like you can understand why that might be frustrating, even though he's trying to help. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so so Norman pushes them all away, and they're getting ready to go out, but they can't even really get outside because the mob is so uh, enraged that they think that these kids are the zombies getting ready to attack them. And Norman does this uh, ascent, and he gets hit with the lightning bolt from the witch, and it hurls Norman from the tower and deep into the archives. And he has this dream where he learns that the witch was Agatha Prendergast, a little girl of his age who was also a medium, and obviously the implication is that Norman is related to her, getting his second sight from that side of the family, as did his uncle. And Norman realizes that Aggie, that's what they call her in the movie, was wrongfully convicted by the town council when they mistook her powers for witchcraft. And again, you know, really just hitting that theme of people acting out of fear make hasty, rash decisions that wind up hurting other people, sort of that hurt people, hurt people kind of thing. Yes, um, absolutely. And this this scene in particular, like when they're carrying her away, is just, they don't really hold back very much. Like they really show how horrible it would be for a little girl to be condemned to death because of this like benign 
supernatural power because mm-hmm. these people are just so terrified of it. They like she tries to defend herself by saying like I was only playing, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Like it's, yeah. it's like I w- and they're like you're being reckless with our whole with our whole town souls by doing this, and they're just so terrified that like this little girl who doesn't even in their minds it's clear they don't think that she was actively doing something wrong. They think right. that she was like messing with forces that she didn't understand. Yeah, and but it was going to end up condemning all of their souls in the process so it's unacceptable so that she has to be killed and it's just so heartless but also so, like you could just understand that like palpable fear of the townspeople and it's matched by that palpable fear of this little innocent girl who just did nothing wrong and is still going to be killed by the state it's awful it's really really like tragic in a way that is very surprising to see them go that far in a movie that is still ostensibly a kid's movie yeah, and I, the cycle perpetuates right there. Like as they surround her, she says, "Like don't, don't like come any closer. Like I'll hurt you." Like and and she curses them, and and so you see how it does kind of pass on. Like you said, it really is intense. It feels like more than a kids' movie, definitely. But Norman wakes up and he encounters the zombies again and recognizes them as the town council who convicted this little girl, and because he can speak to the dead he can talk to them and their leader who's the judge judge hopkins admits that they only wanted to speak with him to ensure that he would actually do the ritual to minimize the damage of the mistake that they made back then again just exploring that fear or that theme of people lashing out um and letting being scared turn them into reactionary brainless people driven only by instinct like these zombies and so it's only when they have when they take their time to really think about what they're doing and understand their emotions that they're able to kind of escape this and work to minimize the damage you know really uh, i think a lot going on there yes norman attempts to help the zombies slip away so that they can guide him to the grave but he's cornered by the mob and courtney mitch neil and alvin rally to his side and confront the crowd saying that they're no different than the cursed town folk from long ago, and that their rage and misunderstanding is, you know, exactly this cycle perpetuating again. The mob does calm down, but the witch is like, hell nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unleashes like, her powers. Right. And let me tell you, this scene where, like, the kids explain to the mob why being a mob is bad, <laughs> like, I just, like, I just want to, like, clip it and just, like, like have it as, it as a short clip on Twitter that I could just, like, post like once a week (laughs) because i just i feel like not enough people get this message and Mm. like they would really benefit from it sure (laughs) like like i feel like what we're talking about it being like even more resident now than it was in 2012 when it was initially released this is a scene that definitely is like what is in my mind when i say that because it's just so much like everything is a mob mentality these days you know it's us against them it's everything is us against them regardless of what side you are there's 12 sides and it's always us against them in every corner and it's just so toxic and so dehumanizing to the people that you're talking about and also dehumanizing to yourself and this movie really gets that it gets how it's a two-way street and when you dehumanize someone Mm -hmm. because you're afraid of them and it's just really but it also never dismisses the fear Like, it validates the fear as, like, that's a real feeling that you have for a real reason. But let's now honor that and now do something constructive with it 
and turn it into caring instead of hate. And I think that that's just so such a powerful message that th- this world needs that message amplified so loudly these days. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that this movie really does a, a wonderful job of communicating that message. In the next couple scenes, we see it even more. Judge Hop guides Norman's family to the grave in the forest, but the magic powers of the witch separate Norman from the others. And Norman tries to stop her, but she insists that Norman doesn't know her. And his approach here is what I was talking about with, like, the spikes coming out of the ground and the great sound mixing, but they're, like, floating in this, like, alternate dimension, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, oh my god, it's so gorgeous. But, like, quickly before we get to there, I just want to say that, like, this, the moment right before that where, like, the crowd has been confronted and now Norman is going and the zombies are going to help him and his family decides to rally behind him and actually accept him and and trust him and support him is just, like, this like very cathartic moment mm-hmm. of paying off so much of what the film had been setting up previously. And so now you get everybody coming into the forest supporting him and then it enables him to do it himself, which is just yeah. a really there's a lot of nuance there where it's not like we need to all come together to solve the problem. It's like we just he just needs to be supported by yeah. you. Like he doesn't need you to come and help him. He doesn't need you to come and save him. He just needs you to support him as he saves himself and everyone else. And I think that's like there's a lot of nuance to that messaging. And I yeah. was really impressed by the complexity of it, given how it was so clearly setting up this idea of like he's pushing people away and he needs to let people in that like the payoff yeah, of it was that. more sophisticated than you were expecting. Absolutely. I I think that it's great. I think that they do a really spectacular job. And I think that you've really kind of summarized that arc really well. And and it's so important in this movie. And I, I really love it. I love the way that they approach it. Yeah, and it's because his character needs to have that arc completed by the time he has this confrontation, the the final confrontation with Agatha. So that right. way he can kind of impart this wisdom that he's just now learned, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, he's, he's using it quick. He's uh, yes. not wasting any time. <laughs> but, that, but. but that makes it a really well-written screenplay, too, mm-hmm. because it's like if your character could solve the problem in the first scene, like in the last scene, based on like who he was in the first scene, then you don't have a good script. Like, Right. He needs like the arc that he travels on has to allow him, has to enable him to like to solve that problem in the final in the final act. And I think that they do a really good job of of weaving that in along with all of this other stuff that we're talking about. So that way, when he gets to that point, you feel like he has changed and he has accepted things and he is the only person who can solve this problem because he's experienced what. Agatha has experienced, but he's learned the lesson that she never had the opportunity to learn. And I mean, it's true that this scene is great because of that dialogue and the message that they're doing, but also it's just a really dope scene because her design is great. Oh my God. It's gorgeous. Yeah. She's all like lightningy and there's crackling and the score by John Brion is uh, swelling and it's it's just great. I mean, it, it's... And it's so imaginative. Like, mm-hmm. it truly is. Like, for a movie that has had a lot of imagination around the corners of the of the screen, this, like, climax really just floods the center of the screen with imagination <laughs> in a way that really is powerful. Yeah, and Norman holds his ground, saying that he's an outcast too, but that her vengeance has only made her like the ones who wronged her, and eventually he... F- this message does get through and he he manages to get her to stop dwelling on her pain and to remember happier days because she's encountered someone who understands her plight and she's able to call to mind the memory of her mother 
And so she's able to find some peace and cross over to the afterlife to reunite with her. And the storm dissipates, and she, the zombies, and the judge all fade away. The town cleans up and regards Norman as a hero, and he thanks Neil for sticking by him. The true hero of this movie is Neil, <laughs> and and it's great. I think that it's so it's so nice to see this come together in such a great way. In the end, Norman watches a horror movie with the ghost of his grandmother and his family, who've all grown to accept Norman for who he is. And speaking of accepting people for who they are, Mitch, who plays the dumb jock role the whole time, uh, is the first openly gay animated character in a quote-unquote kids movie. And I'm curious if you like the way that they handle this reveal or if you wish that it wasn't like a twist at the last couple seconds. I, I personally would have preferred them to layer this in at some point earlier mm-hmm. in the film. Yeah. It really just, it almost kind of comes across as like, it's a joke. It's the joke's not on on him, right. which is nice. It's on, it's kind of on Her misreading it. Yeah, Norman's sister misreading yeah. the situation, which is, you know, obviously preferable to the joke being on, on right. the gay character. But yeah, I, I would have liked it as as a little bit more. Like, I, I you didn't need to really, like, I mean, they allude to a boyfriend. Uh, maybe, ha- like, he's going through all of these, like, life, like, threatening experiences. Maybe he would have mentioned that he has someone that he loves, like, right. at some point <laughs> before then. Um, but, you know, I think that they probably couldn't have gotten away with that in 2012 to be honest i don't you know um it's questionable how much they could still get away with that now i mean Mm -hmm. in the like right now a movie called onward pixar's latest film yeah i was gonna bring this up too yeah they just got a lot of flack for having a uh the, the first openly gay character in a disney movie and i've seen that film and the character is played by lena waith who is a queer actress which is which is great as far as representation goes that they cast a queer person to play a queer person right that's great she's playing a police officer which is like a little questionable given like the long (laughs) uh and complicated relationship that queer people have with the police it's definitely at the very least not a neutral position to give to Mm -hmm. a, a queer person but also like when i watched the movie it's literally just a single line of dialogue where she is talking to someone else who has kids and is like look i get what you're going through i'm dealing like i'm dealing with my girlfriend and her kid right now and it's tough and it's like and that's it like that's just the single line of right. dialogue and that is and that's queer representation and it's like okay that wasn't at the very end of the movie you know but it's right. literally exactly the same level of representation it's a single line of dialogue yeah <laughs> that is and that's you know eight years later so i think we have kind of a lot long way to go i mm-hmm. for me the way that i saw it is more of like a nod to the queer subtext that i think is very palpable throughout the film yeah it's kind of a way to just like wink at the audience and be like what you were picking up we did intent you know right because <laughs> a lot of the times you know queer people find queer subtext and things and maybe the creators aren't necessarily intending for it to have that reading and right. they almost like accidentally create a work of art that could be read in that way right but i think that them doing that in the last scene really is them kind of like winking to the audience like i said and saying like what you're picking like what we're picking up on Mm -hmm. like that's what we intended we did have this idea as like a part of the emotional tapestry of this film that you could read it through a queer lens and so we're giving you this queer character at the very end to kind of honor that but that's really that's really small (laughs) you know like it's it's really small i definitely agree with you 100 percent, and i think that there is so much of what queer people have brought to horror 
and you know there there are all these great movies that can be viewed through through a queer lens like uh, like you said, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, um, Jennifer's Body as well. But James Whale, who directed Frankenstein, was openly gay, something extremely unusual, especially in the 30s. And, you know, that's such an iconic part of horror. And the fact that the LGBTQ plus community has been part of horror for so long, I think that it would be really great for more of a representation of of that community in horror so definitely something that i would love to see more of instead of just uh one throwaway line at the end so hopefully that continues to uh to improve yes so that's in terms of textual representation it definitely could have done better Mm -hmm. but in terms of subtextual representation i think it's a truly excellent example of a queer film Mm -hmm. in my opinion like if i was making a list of like my 10 favorite queer movies I would definitely put uh, Paranorman in that list, even if it's not explicitly a queer film. Because it's so implicitly a queer film. Like, it's about a kid who, right as he starts puberty, he (laughs) has this thing about him that he can't change that sets him apart from everyone else in his small town, and everybody is afraid of it, and everybody makes him feel bad for it, and he can only really get by, like, get past it by being supported by the people who he loves in order to help him embrace himself and like realize that this thing is actually a good thing that can make him see the world in a in a different way that allows him to do things that other people can't which is great you know like it and I, that's i mean if that's not a queer movie i don't know what is right yeah i i think that it, it is a great queer movie and i think that on top of all of that it sticks the landing in a great way but the movie isn't even done being awesome because we get this great credit sequence with art that's very reminiscent of classic horror posters. And then <laughs> instead of a more typical stinger, uh, we see the process of them building, uh, building Norman's body, which then gets animated waking up and walking away. I was like, this is so cool. Yeah. And that's uh, like a movies tend to end like with a post credit scene with like, a, this is how we did this. Yeah. Every single time, it just blows your mind. Mm-hmm. Because, like, when you're watching it, you're like, it's a stop-motion animated movie. I've seen those. I know what they're like. It's, like, little, like, clay figures, and, like, they move and whatever. But then, like, you watch it happen. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> How? Really? Yeah. For the whole movie? Did this take 12 <laughs> years? Like, what? <laughs> it really is crazy, and so much work goes into stop-motion animation. And I think that that almost helps to explain why so many of them are good is because you don't do it if you're not passionate about it, you know? (laughs) Yes. So so that definitely helps. But not only is that good, Alex, we've reached the point of the show now where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made. So I'm going to let you kick things off, and uh, why don't you give the folks a nice little summary of uh, what we've been talking about. So it's the best horror movie ever made because it knows what horror movies are and it places itself squarely in that lineage while being accessible to different types of viewers and having something many interesting things to say about the world and about the people who might be watching it yeah i i agree 100 i think that this is the best horror movie ever made because it is a kid's movie that doesn't treat them like kids it doesn't have these kid gloves on it treats them like people who understand the world that they live in and have their own views and understandings and go through their own trials and and tribulations. You know, it doesn't dismiss childhood as something that is free from care. And I know 
there's a lot of movies that kind of look back on childhood with this like, oh, more innocent time and no one ever has anything to worry about. And I think yes. that this is a more accurate representation. <laughs> that of, is a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah. And, and I literally so, just saw a film recently, which I won't name because I don't want to come here and trash movies, but I just saw a film recently that uh, has that exact problem where it just it does exactly what you said and it drives me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I definitely agree. And I think that this movie does not do that at all. I think that it has this really adult subject matter that works for kids to be exposed to the uh, animation itself is absolutely incredible. The passion for horror is on display in every cell of this movie. I mean, the style choices that they make are all great as well. Like, just the way that the characters are designed is so fun and unique and interesting. Helps to set itself apart from these other animated movies. I also think that it is immensely approachable for people who are just dipping their toes into horror especially for kids, especially for people who are just like, that's not really my genre. Absolutely. I think that it does it in a way that's great for building people up to more scary things. I think that this is great at giving you like a taste of what's great about horror, that social commentary, the fun scares that aren't too over the top. Uh, And using this as kind of a springboard into Coraline, which then could lead into further things. I think that this is really like the ultimate movie to start a horror fan. And to me, that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Alex, this was so much fun. I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking with me. This was really great, and I loved having an excuse to rewatch it. So why don't you (laughs) tell people where they can find you and get more of that great film analysis? Sure. Well, thank you, number one, for having me on. This has been a blast. I think just spending this much time talking about why this movie is great has made me love it even more and that's always an excellent experience so thank you for that hear it (laughs) um you can follow me on twitter at media thinkings and at letterbox at media thinkings where you could find which movie i'm vaguely referring to (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and you could also follow me every week at my podcast cinema joes you can follow cinema joes on twitter and instagram at cinema joes you could subscribe to us on apple podcasts and spotify and google podcasts and anchor and most places that you get podcasts and i'm also as you said the tv editor for the popbreak.com where you can see you know i usually write like you know once or twice a month there and i'm editing every tv piece so i'm invisibly my hands are invisibly (laughs) touching everything that you read in the tv section so (laughs) you can check me out over there too there you go and uh you can find me on twitter at gerg hef you can find the show on twitter at little horror phl that username uh, is the same for facebook and instagram as well we have merch on TeePublic if you want to uh, go ahead and support us that way, including some very fun shirts that have uh, a zombie version of Ben Franklin. So if you're in the mood for zombie stuff, you know, get your fix there, uh, as well as gritty mixed up with uh, Child's Play. So oh, some no. fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so definitely check that out. Thanks again for coming on, Alex. And uh, listeners, please uh, spread the word. Tell people about this movie. I think that it really is underseen. So you know definitely let's uh, let's try and fix that it had the unfortunate timing of coming out the same year as frankenweenie yeah and i feel like people just kind of group them together as like oh it's like weird like horror stop motion things and like frankenweenie is not a good movie and this <laughs> is like an all-time great film so it's yeah. just like definitely like don't sell it short give it a chance i guarantee you will be into it if you put it on for 10 minutes yep absolutely co-signed and with that uh see you all next week bye bye